Today's scripture lesson is from... Today's scripture reading is from Mark, chapter 6, verses 7 through 30. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out, two by two, and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executor with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. Would you uh, pray with me? Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would speak by your spirit, that you would cause us to be changed, that you would cause us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Give us grace. May the words of my lips, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. May you be glorified, O Lord. Amen. So we continue on in our journey through Mark, and this is a long text that is somewhat confusing when put together. Uh, It seems like there are two very distinct stories at play here. 
um, and that maybe they would be better suited if, uh, if we told them at separate times and tried to explain them at separate times. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that that's the case. I'm not sure that these stories are divorced from one another. And so we're going to read them together and understand them under this giant header that Jesus has called his people to proclaim in both word and deed the good news of the kingdom. Let me say that again. Jesus has called his people to proclaim in both word and deed the good news of the kingdom. This is how the story starts. So if you recall, we've seen Jesus still a storm. We've seen him cast out a legion of demon. We've seen him heal a woman who was sick from bleeding and who had been bleeding for, for years and <laughs> raise a woman or raise a, 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 a girl from the dead. And now Jesus tells his disciples that the very thing that I'm doing is the thing that you are meant to be doing. Now, what's interesting about this is if you read all of, if you were to sit down in one reading and read the Gospel of Mark, you would see a very clear trajectory in the path of Jesus. Mark starts out with Jesus on a mission, Jesus on a road with a destination, and he walks that road. It's the road from him being. Uh, <clears throat> Christ to him being king in a sense. It's the road of him being anointed. If you look at this, Jesus is anointed as a king would be. He walks the path to his throne. He's crowned. Now, it's full of irony. He's anointed in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, uh, a man that by all rights everybody thought was crazy. He ate locusts and honey. He was kind of a madman. He had wild hair and wild eyes. And he's not a prophet like Samuel, who anointed David. Uh, he's not a, a magi like the ones who would have anointed Caesar. He's a wild man baptizing sinners in a river. And Jesus comes and is baptized, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We read this. This is his anointing. He has been proclaimed king, and much like David, his anointing comes well before his coronation. Right? You recall, David is just a young man who is not yet, uh, he's, he's just playing songs for the king when he gets anointed. And then there's a whole journey of running from that very king who loved him, hiding in the wilderness, uh, <clears throat> fearing for his life from his own people, from Saul and his men. Uh, it's this drama and intrigue. And, and in the same way, I think that we miss out on the story of Jesus because we don't read it with all the drama and the intrigue. And this text gives us some of that. It gives us kind of Game of Thrones level, like, what is going on? Right? And so this road is leading Jesus somewhere. And that somewhere is the cross. And on the cross, in, in irony, he's crowned king. But instead of a crown of gold, he's given a crown of thorns. And instead of uh, <clears throat> a processional, and instead of uh, 
trumpets and people heralding him, uh, he gets a, a rickety sign that, that's mocking him, saying, King of the Jews nailed to a cross. And if, instead of standing uh, and sitting in a, in, a, in a throne room with power and with pomp and circumstance, he's nailed to a tree and raised on a hill. But this is the path of Jesus. This is Jesus becoming king. That's the story of Mark. It's the path, the way of the king. And what we see here for the first time in Mark is something that we'll see again and again. And then we see in Matthew, we see in Luke, and Acts, and John. <coughs> Jesus begins to say that the way of the king is the way of the disciples. Jesus is distilling, he's unpacking, he's teaching us what it means to actually follow him. Jesus had a road that he was called to walk. And now he's saying to his disciples, you will join me in that. And the first thing that happens and the first way that they join him is that the ministry that he's been given, he now gives to them. And I love this. If we're going to talk about disciple making or if we're going to talk about any sort of coaching, right? And you can apply this principle beyond the church into any aspect of life. There's three aspects. There are three things that Jesus has now done. He's taught. He's told them what to do, how to do, what it looks like. He's demonstrated. And now he's giving them practice. He's letting them do it. He's sending them. And he says, <clears throat> he says he call, it says he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority. Authority. Not just to teach, but to, to cast out, to have authority over unclean spirits. And so now Jesus is telling them, it is your turn to go and to proclaim the gospel. This is why I chose you. This is why you are walking with me. It's not just so that you can be witnesses to my splendor and to my uh, heavenly authority. It's so that you can be People who do and speak truth in my kingdom. And so that's what this text is about. It's about what it looks like to be people who Jesus has entrusted with the message of the kingdom. And so let's just walk through this and let's, let's pull out just a few things that I think will be helpful uh, and, and practical. It says that he called them and he told them to go two by two. And he gave them authority. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. I'm going to stop there. Because this first principle is going to seem like ridiculously simplistic. Like obvious. But I would dare say that as obvious and simple as this is, 
that most of us have deep, deep trouble actually doing it. And the first principle is actually to go. Actually to obey Jesus. Jesus sends them out with a message and with a mission. And they go and they do it. And see, here's the thing is we are disciples of Jesus. What's our mission as a church? We say we exist to magnify Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to put Jesus on display by, by making disciples. There's two components, magnifying Jesus, making disciples. And we use that word by in the middle because we genuinely believe that the way that Jesus is made bigger is not simply by like if we, if we blew it out and we had the best church service with the biggest band and, and the, the lights and, and we filled, you know, I was going to say Deepak, but we're not in Durham, North Carolina. And we filled like the, the Verizon Center, Capital One or whatever it's called now. Right? And we filled that out and, and it just rocked and, and the and the music was just perfect, right? Like Hillsong perfect or, or Kirk Franklin perfect, whatever it is. And and we had people in and 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 the lesson was a solid tight thirty-five minutes and I never said um and and everybody walked away with three points that they could easily apply, right? That doesn't magnify Jesus the way that actually making disciples does. And now let me say this so that I don't sound like I'm being disparaging. Those things can make disciples as well, right? I just want to, I want to make sure that I'm not like banging on my Hillsong friends. Right? In so much as they're making disciples and not just putting on a show, they're on mission too, and we should be thankful for them. So I'm not disparaging. I'm just saying we understand magnifying Jesus is not simply putting on the best show that makes people talk about our church, but it's also, and more deeply and more importantly, making disciples. It's that mission. It's being on mission. And that making disciples is, is the preaching both in word and deed, the kingdom, and seeing people believe it, enter into it, and walk in that way. And so the first thing, as I said, it's overly simple, but it's actually do what Jesus says. But I want to give you guys a moment, and I'm, I'm actually going to take this too because I'm guilty as charged. I want to take a moment and, and really just be introspective and say, given the opportunities that you've given, how often are we as a people, or you as individuals, am I as an individual, putting on display the kingdom of God for the glory of Jesus? Right? We're actually doing it. And I think this text is really helpful because, because, and I'm, I want to be very clear about this, because it's descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, it's telling us something, but not necessarily commanding us to do it exactly the same way. Right? Jesus tells the 12 disciples, when you go, don't bring anything. No money, no food, one pair of clothes. Now, Jesus later on, when new disciples come and when the apostles come and he gives uh, the great commission, he doesn't say, go, make disciples, but remember, 
one pair of clothing, no food, don't make money. We see, in fact, Paul, he earns money on the side. He's got a side hustle as well as his ministry making tents, right? So this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I don't want to bind anybody's conscience or have us believe that Jesus is saying if we have more than one pair of clothes that we're not on mission for him, right? But at the same time, what's going on here? He's telling them to live in everyday reality what we sang, I think, two songs ago. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. If this is going to work, what are they going to have to have ample amounts of? Faith. If you're not bringing food, then what you're saying is, I believe that when I go, God has prepared a way for me and bring, uh, and given me people of peace, is how it's talked about in Matthew, or, uh, um, or has prepared people who will, by the generosity of their hearts, feed me. That God is, and, and if not, that God will provide the food. Right? When you bring one pair of clothes, then you're moving in faith that the weather's either going to be cool or that there's going to be a place to wash water or that there are people who will lend you clothes. Now, this is very uncomfortable to us, right? As, as Western Americans, the idea that we go and basically are beggars. We don't like that. We want to control our own destiny. We want to have everything in order and have everything secure. And so that's why I... I both want to say this is not prescriptive. God's not calling us to it. But also, in its descriptive nature, it is telling us something about ourselves. It's revealing a truth that the disciples didn't know, but that was already true before they walked on the road without food or tunic or money. And it's true of us in the United States in 2018, in Washington, D.C., full of just food and money and affluence in this city and resources, right? Jesus is, they are actively demonstrating the truth that is true underneath the surface for all of us. And that is that we are all already beggars who exist only by the grace of God. With all of our resources, and with all of our friends and our family, with all of the things that we have, we must remember that at the end of it all, God is the giver of life. God is the sustainer of life. God is the one who holds you. Your family is just a gift. And as we, as we heard and remembered and prayed last week, even in our mourning and in our sorrow, that's a gift that's not guaranteed tomorrow. Resources. You may feel secure now, but think about how many people were secure on Panama Beach, Florida before Michael. Did you see that footage? Did you see those images? Uh, um, there's nothing you can say. Just like that, gone. 
This is the state that we're already in. We are always a hair's breadth away from it all being gone. And so that should cause us both to rely fully on God for everything, on Jesus for everything, and then also give us this utter sense of gratitude for every breath, for life, for our families, for if you have children, for your children, for for our friendships, for, for everything that God has given us. For this very day, we should have this sense of awe and gratitude and desperate faith, knowing that God sustains us. Now, they did this very practically. And this is one of those few cases where, and you know what? God does call some people to uh, vows of poverty and to live life out that way. But for all of us, he calls us to recognize that apart from him, poverty is our spiritual, physical, actual state. And here's the thing. The gratitude in that, the day-by-day faith in that, becomes a part of the witness and the proclamation of the king and his kingdom. And so Jesus sends them out. That first principle, just go, gets rounded out by going in faith. But then it says more. So they went out and they proclaimed that all should repent. Now it doesn't stop there. Right, so I grew up in a uh, in very. Uh, even though my home wasn't this way, uh, some of the churches and especially the Christian high school that I went to, you've you've heard this, you know, right? Very fundamentalist, very independent, very, very Baptist. Like Baptist, it's not even like actually like historically Baptist, right? I learned in my history class that the origin of the Baptist church was, yes, Jesus, John the Baptist, and the Jordan River. That that was the first Baptist church service. And the thing is, they're not saying that like, ha, 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 like when I'm like first Baptist Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, right? They're not saying that as a joke. Like, they mean it. And then everything else that happened, Catholic, Eastern, all of church history, was all just, they all missed it. But thankfully, there was this strain of just, uncorrupted, unadulterated, independent, (laughs) King James only, (laughs) Baptist. And for them, that's where this verse would stop. Right? They proclaimed that all should repent. Amen, hear, hear. Uh, Proclaimeth would be better than proclaimed, but that's where it would stop. And then after that, I unwittingly, and I do mean unwittingly, because I didn't realize it was a Christian school until I looked at my uh, class list and uh, had CEP, which then when I went to CEP turned out to be chapel um, on it. Then I went to a very, very progressive, liberal Baptist. I love the breath of Baptists here, Baptist school. And they wouldn't have started reading that. They wouldn't start reading until this next verse. They cast out many demons and anointed them with oil and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. And here's what they would have said. And they do to this day say, the proclamation of repentance is not as vital to the work of the kingdom 
as the actual acts of justice and mercy. Right? So on one end of my, my growing up in life was repent, 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 repent. What good does it do if you feed somebody who's hungry if they have a full belly and they go to hell? That's verbatim. And then on the other side is don't worry about that. Just justice and mercy. Just feed. Just do this, right? But what does this text give us? Both. So the first principle is actually do this. Go, proclaim the kingdom by faith. Then the second principle, which actually modifies the first, is in word and deed. I'll hearken back to this as often as I can when I preach, even though Joey's in the children's ministry room, because when he preached a few months now, a couple months now back on Jesus healing the paralytic, one of the things he said was that Jesus does not see fit to divorce the spiritual from the physical. And neither should we. Like, do we get this? Do you get that that's what makes Hebrew, like, Judaism unique in the ancient Near East as it emerges? Is that it doesn't divorce the body from the spirit? Consider, they're in the ancient Near East where everyone has a, a multi-god system. And the belief of most people is that the body and the soul are different and that they are not married together, but rather we are embodied souls. Our souls are trapped in these bodies. And one day, the best thing that can happen is that our souls will be divorced, will be uh, detached from our bodies and more importantly, our egos. And we will join everything and become one with everything. This plays out in Western thought and Gnosticism, right? There's mind and there's body, and mind is good, and body is to be, uh, <clears throat> to be denied. But how does Scripture start? Scripture starts with God, who is spirit, touching dirt and making body. It doesn't start with Adam and Eve as disembodied spirits floating around who, when they sin, are confined to these bodies that get old and sore. And I played with my son at a birthday party, and, and the three dads played keep away from, like, 11 boys, and, and, and we, we, we trashed them. Like, we <laughs> destroyed them. And that needs to be known. And what they don't need to know is that I woke up feeling the full weight everywhere of that utter annihilation. Right? And the lower back. And I need, I need a tub of Ben Gay. Right? And so we, we look at it and we say these bodies that age like, and they corrupt and these are the things that... But that's not sin didn't give us bodies. God did. God gave us the physical. He made bodies and then he breathed life into it, is the way that the story goes. He imbues body with spirit so that they cannot be divorced. The body is not wrong. The body is not sinful. The body is from God. And the spirit is connected to it. And so the ministry of the kingdom is working in both the spirit 
and the body. And so Jesus both proclaims, or so his disciples both proclaim that they should, that all should repent and at the same time heals their physical ailments, cares for their body. This is why as a church we are both, we are both tied to the notion that Jesus is Lord and that, that we proclaim each week, I hope, that Jesus is the hero of this cosmic story that is being worked out here on planet Earth and in the universe. And that we find life as we follow him, as we believe and, and, and look after and look up to the cross and the work that Jesus has done. We both preach that and we preach that we have to get out there and we, we need to be doing acts of justice and mercy. I want to take this time to say like, this team that we have, pray for them, not just today, but, but join in with the work that they're doing. I'm so grateful that yesterday we were able to participate in justice and mercy in two ways that are very uniquely different, right? One way, after we prayed yesterday, team went out and, and began cleaning up the park, cleaning up the neighborhood, picking up trash. And this is something we want to do because because the body is tied to place. I don't have time to break down a theology of place. But trust me, the Old Testament is almost like that is one of the key themes of the Old Testament is place. People and the place that they are tied to. So when a place is cared for and loved, it communicates to the people whose place that is that they are cared for and loved. And so we did that, and we're going to keep doing that. And I invite you to come, even if you're tired, if you can, to come and help us pick up and care for the place that God has put us in. And at the same time, it was out of the blue, um, but a, a friend of ours, a, a, a father uh, from our kids' school, teaches yoga, instructs yoga. And he was, he, he was working with a program that works with foster kids in order to, to help them in, in areas of life resources, health, and wellness. Uh, and he lost the place to actually uh, to do these exercises with these, these foster kids and to give them lunch. And we were able to use this space to house them. And so while we were picking up trash, there was 20 foster kids in our room getting lunch and getting care and being taught that their bodies matter and they need to take care of them, right? Like these are acts of justice and mercy that we get to participate in. And it's the same, it's the same. We may not understand it that way, but as a church where we have two families in those in very similar situations, caring for people who are coming out of brokenness is a deep and godly act of justice. And it has, it has, <clears throat> it has uh, impact that will last in lives beyond what we can imagine. And they did it here. I love this idea, even as silly as it is, but I love symbols. And, and so the idea, the symbol that they were doing it here under the cross, by the cross, in a church, and they know, this organization knows, and our friend Brandon knows, that Union Church is here for them. That's word and deed, friends. And that's what we're here to do. And so we, were, we proclaim these things. And we do these things. 
because Jesus has called us to follow his road. He's put us on mission to proclaim the kingdom both in word and deed. And so what is going to happen, though, when you do that? And that's why this Herod story becomes so important. And I don't have time to, to actually preach through the whole story. And I think a lot of you grew up in the church, you know it. If you didn't, and this is unusual to you, I I just read it again and, and, and just understand, like, this is a story. And and while you can pull out some principles from it, like, this is this is just the history of what happened, and it's giving context to the environment that the disciples and Jesus are ministering in. But listen to this. King Herod heard of it. See, we think that the way to get influence is to go big and to go loud. And isn't that what we, that's what's on display in our, in our world and in our society. The bigger you are, the louder you are, the more resources you are, you have, the more influence you get. And that's who we see on TV and that's who we see, like that's what we see uh, uh, all the time. They're the people yelling at each other, uh, the talking heads yelling at each other on CNN or MSNBC or Fox. And we think that's how you get influence. Or we think that the way that you influence a culture and a society is simply by voting. Vote your conscience if your conscience allows, please. But we, but we think and we, we reduce influence to, to activism, right? And, and though that's a part of it, what's amazing here is that these men who walked around with nothing and who just did acts of justice, mercy, and proclaimed the truth, somehow their words and their deeds find their way to the king. And they are changing and shaping a culture from the bottom up. What I love is that it doesn't say King Herod heard of it. For the names of Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthias, Judas, Jude, and two others. <laughs> That's a funny blank right there. But it doesn't say their names had become known. It wasn't, man, this Peter cat is killing it. What does it say? Who's doing the work? The 12. Through the power of Jesus. But when it says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. See, when we're doing these things for ourselves and we're trying to garner influence and gain influence, when we're doing it for ourselves, it, it doesn't have the impact or the power. But when we're doing it in the name of Jesus and all of a sudden it's me over here doing it in the name of Jesus and Paul over there doing it in the name of Jesus and, and the churches that we pray for doing it in the name of Jesus as well as Union Church in the name of Jesus and the churches that we partner with, even the churches that we don't know, all of a sudden, the name of Jesus is being magnified, and it is here to the point that Herod hears of it, and they're speculating, they're trying to figure out, all right, who's this Jesus guy? Like, oh, we got another, who is it? Uh, it must be John the Baptist. I love, can you just for an instance, like, just for a second, think about how hilariously out of their minds they are. Right? So right now, people are repenting, starting to follow Jesus, 
and people are being healed. That's it. Right? Nobody's like charging the storming the castle gates. Right? Nobody's but they're like, okay, there's a movement happening and we've got to get a wrap our eyes around it. And so we, they say it's Jesus. They say it's Jesus. Who is Jesus? And so then they're thinking like, oh, they must be talking. Like, oh, it's John the Baptist. <laughs> John the, Herod, Herod thinks it must be John the Baptist. The guy I killed, whose head I saw. That, that's the whole next story. Is to remind you of how out of his mind Herod is that he thinks it's the guy whose head he just had delivered on a platter. He's so racked with guilt. Like, I, I, I don't even have time. Oh, I wish I had time to do a psychological profile of Herod in this moment. So racked with guilt. So much PTSD. And so concerned. So, like, little certainty of his authority. Right? So insecure that this movement of fishermen and shepherds and a tax collector and a, and a defunct carpenter has got him like, who is this? What's going on? Must be John the Baptist. And other people are like, maybe it's Elijah. <laughs> right? Uh, Elijah, the prophet, or some other prophet. He's got to be one of the prophets of old, come back. Like, they've actually gone into resurrection mode. Like, somebody was resurrected, and it's them. But how... How crazy is this? But you see, when we actually work out the message and, and the, the, the acts, the deeds of the kingdom, <laughs> what it does is it speaks a truth to power that the power cannot live with or comprehend. And here's the truth that it speaks, is that there is another, newer, better kingdom coming. And it's here now, but not yet in its fullness. And all of you who hold power, all of you who hold your power over the weak and the vulnerable, over the sick and the marginalized and the poor, you need to watch out because this kingdom is not starting in your castles. It's not starting in the halls of Congress. It's not starting in your places of power. It's starting at the bottom with the, it's starting at the margins. It's starting there and it's coming up and it's coming in and all things will be made new. And that proclamation is truth that power cannot receive. And it unsettles him. And so we get this story of how John the Baptist even had unsettled him and his family in the ways that he spoke truth and ends up dead for it. And Herod simply can't stop. And we get this as the first warning or at least the first sign that both the religious leaders now, the political leaders, have Jesus on their radar. It's starting. They're worried. This is beginning, this is moving Jesus further on that road to the cross, and it's moving those who are with him further down that road. We speak truth to power. We change culture and society when we walk in faith.
proclaiming in word and deed the full truth and presence of God's kingdom. And that is exhausting. And so there's one last principle before we come to the table. I'll say the principle, then I'll read. It's a principle I've been saying over and over again, and because I think it's so important for us in D.C. Presence with the Lord. Silence and solitude. Escape. Right? If you want to use a a sort of pop, contemporary, secular term, self-care is vital to the work that God has given us. Jesus practiced it. He began his ministry by retreating. And then he's like, oh, too many people, too much stuff. He retreats. He retreats. He retreats. The disciples go out. They're seeing power. They're seeing kingdom. They are seeing God move. And then it says, they then, uh, <clears throat> then he returned from the region. I just skipped a whole chapter. That's why that doesn't make sense. My bad. Over here. <laughs> uh, it says, uh, immediate, Then the disciples gathered around Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught. Right? So they're like, juiced, right? And you see this. It's, it's the way I feel like after yesterday. It's like, Union Church is doing this we are, we are here and we're doing what we believe God has called. And we're excited. And so they go and they report to Jesus all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away with me to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. Rhythms of work and rest. Rhythms of kingdom ministry and faithful rest. And I want to ask you, and end with this, have you worked out in your life, in your family life, in your ministry life, rhythms of rest? You see, in the silence and the solitude, they hear God, they meet God, and they are ministered to by God. But even in that, or not but, but also along with that, is this reality that Jesus understands that they and we are frail. And we think that, you know, like, we live in a world that says, if you don't hustle, it doesn't happen. But what's funny (laughs) is when you look at those at the top, top, like the top, 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 CEOs, I heard an interview with Jeff Bezos. That's how you say his name, Bezos, Bezos, I don't know, right? And he said he doesn't go into work until 10. He eats breakfast with his kids every day. And over the course of a day, he tries to do, tries to make two good decisions. And that's it. Then he goes home and he rests. And he builds in for himself weeks of rest, or sabbatical is the ministry term for it, right? But the guys at the top, the people at the top learn quickly that if you don't rest, you don't make it. And so now I'm not saying your goal is to be at the top like that. But what I am saying is that you do, they realize and we recognize. And despite the, the mentality that we have where it's hustle hard all the time, 
You can rest when you're dead. Right? That's the mentality we get. But that lack of rest, ironically, leads to a quicker death. And not just physically. Like, you need rest. You need space. You need times where you can breathe and remember who you are and whose you are. Your family needs that. Professionally, you need that. Spiritually, you need that. That's hard. It's counterintuitive for a lot of us. But it's self-care. You will do the best work for God, for your family, for yourself, for your work, when you're working out of rest, not into collapse. This is the ministry that Jesus has given us. Proclaim the kingdom. Rest in him. Let's pray.